You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you have spoken to us, that you have given us your word. So now in light of it, in response to it, being transformed by it. God, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch week, so if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to talk about Psalm 19 with Abby and with Cedric, you can make your way with them, and we'll see you back in here in a few minutes. Well, we have finished up our months and months long walk through the book of Acts, and so as is our custom in between books, we are going to spend a a week or two or three uh, in the the book of Psalms, uh, just going through these wonderful, wonderful songs, prayers, and tonight, one of my favorites. Uh, Well, if you have ever traveled to a different country, or if you have ever tried to learn a new language, you'll know that you will just, even if you understand the words that are coming out of people's mouths, you will encounter certain idioms, certain phrases that make no sense. Like, apparently, if you are just walking around in Iceland, uh, you might hear someone in Icelandic say, well, that was a raisin at the end of a hot dog, and you would say, what? Uh, and you don't even know what they're talking about. Maybe that comes, maybe that's like, uh, you, you don't know, a raisin in a hot dog. But then somebody clarifies what they're meaning, and it's an unexpected surprise, like in a good way. I think that finding a raisin in your hot dog would be a terrible surprise, but it's apparently when you find something good. Uh, or if you're in Holland, you might, somewhat, you might hear someone describe someone else as that guy uh, having hair on his teeth. And you might think, um, this person is describing someone who needs to go find a toothbrush, but and they, if you ask what they're meaning, they explain that, that they're describing someone who's like ultra-confident, someone who is self-assertive. 
Uh, and American idioms can be just as confusing and just as ridiculous. You, if you are an international student or something and you're here in the States and you hear someone in one of your classes say, hey, I, I took the test and it was a piece of cake. What? Like, was it delicious? Uh, like that makes no sense, or it was raining cats and dogs. That sounds terrifying. Or that guy is a real Monday morning quarterback. What's a quarterback? Uh, all of these things, unless there is some kind of clarification, you will not understand, you will not respond in the right way. And so, you might ask your friend to come over here and spill the beans, and then you've got a mess to clean up, unless you actually are on the same page, speaking the same language, and in the right uh, context. There's nothing wrong or unclear about those idioms with the person who is speaking the language. There's nothing wrong or limited about the person who is hearing the language. But unless you speak the language, you'll never understand without the right clarification. You'll never respond rightly. Well, Psalm 19 is all about speech. It's all about communication and response. It's about communication and understanding, about communication and clarification. God speaks and humans respond. They respond rightly or they don't. This is one of my favorite psalms, and we are going to walk through this psalm uh, together tonight in three parts, and hopefully through it we are going to understand, we're going to respond, we're going to love the Lord, our rock and our redeemer, all the more. But our three parts, our three sections this evening is thinking through first that God reveals through nature, and then God clarifies through his word, and then man responds in reverence, or at least we should. So God reveals through nature, he clarifies through his word, and then man responds in reverence. So first of all, God reveals through nature. In this psalm, it's like David has, just before he put pen to paper, he has just like come from a, a day sitting by a brook under a tree, just watching the clouds go by overhead all day. Maybe then he stayed all in, into the evening as the sun went down, and then he just lays there under the stars in a, in a field in the dark. This is something that we've thought about a couple of times, uh, certainly in the book of Ecclesiastes or about a year ago in Psalm 8, uh, that it should be a regular Christian discipline to just force yourself to go lay down and look at the stars. Our family has failed in this this summer. We didn't plan very well this summer to like force ourselves to just go with nothing to do, with no phones, with no distraction, even with very limited conversation. But just putting yourself in a position to, even away from the city lights, to look at the stars and to just think, to consider what you're looking at. Ancient folks would have experienced the sky much more than we do not only because of the lack of nighttime city lights in centuries past, but with just far less to do. No TVs, no phones, no computers, no video games. And even if you had somewhere to go in, in, in the evening at nighttime in centuries past, you couldn't get into a car with a roof over your head and to, to not look up. You, while you were walking, you were just looking around. My boys and I on Friday night were walking our dog after the sun had gone down and the almost full moon was coming up and we just had the best conversation about the stars and the moon with, because there was nothing else to do. We were just walking around and looking up. We don't get those experiences uh, nearly the amount, which would have been just a, a daily occurrence in David's time. 
But here's what happens when you look at the stars. You realize how tiny you are. Not just by glancing at the stars, but I mean staring again without phones, without distractions, without much talking. You begin to think, you begin to really consider the immensity of the universe, your tininess, your insignificance, not only in this world, but even then expanded to the universe. In Psalm 8, David looks at the stars, and he got to a conclusion like that, of considering insignificance. In Psalm 8, David writes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 19 is similar, but it's a a bit different. In Psalm 8, his focus starts in the skies, then it bounces back to humanity. Now, considering how big the the stars and the heavens are, then he considers his smallness, and then that very quickly then bounces back to God in his glory. But here in Psalm 19, he doesn't bounce back down to thinking of himself, bouncing down to humanity quite so fast. He does, but just not until later. In considering creation, here in Psalm 19, David just stays there. His eyes stay there. His heart and his mind stay there. Bouncing all over the wonder and the immensity of what he sees to then consider the God behind it all. Let's read these first two verses again. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So, David is saying that anyone on the earth can look up day and night and understand God. God is speaking through these things. There is knowledge to be understood about God. There is a way to understand the glory and the wonder of God, which is exactly the argument that Paul makes in Romans 1. Romans 1.20, when Paul says, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, the things that you can't see, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is saying, the things that you can't see about God, you can actually see through the things that we can see. He has revealed himself through his creation, which is is exactly what nearly every single human culture in the history of the world would essentially agree with up until about two to three hundred years ago. That for there, be, for there to be something as vast and immense as all of this, there must be something huge, some being, some god or gods that is greater still than all of this, something powerful to have created that. Now, of course, we've made unbelievable scientific advances in the past two to three hundred years, thankfully and amazingly, in our understanding of the universe. But while many scientists will argue for a completely naturalistic origin of the universe, an, an uncaused Big Bang, many other scientists will see the difficulty in this. That, the, that is that the universe's origins remain one of scientists' or science's great remaining mysteries. How did this all begin? So you have guys like evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins saying things like, perhaps a possible scenario, since we don't understand the origins of the universe, perhaps a uh, possible scenario for life appearing on Earth is that some other being out there, some other alien being out there implanted human life on Earth. Or, while he's no biologist or even much of a scientist, Elon Musk 
uh, arguing that most likely, the most likely explanation, explanation for all of this that we see and encounter daily is that we are living in a computer simulation. That's the most likely explanation for it all. The impulse here from Dawkins and from Elon Musk is actually Psalm 19. If you really get to it, and if you start thinking about what they are arguing, it's Psalm 19, that the universe is too big, the universe is too complex, is too glorious to have just appeared out of nothing without a first cause. And this isn't new. This isn't new. It isn't isolated with Judeo-Christian worldviews. There are many other songs. There are many other poems, just like, with very similar language to Psalm 19, that exist in the world and in cultures that were surrounding David at the time that he was writing things like this. Based on some of the language and phrases that David uses here, he very likely uh, could have been aware of some of these other poems around him. And yet, what sets Psalm 19 apart from, and, and what sets the worldview of the Bible apart from other Egyptian or Canaanite or Babylonian cultures that were worshiping and saying similar things is that these other cultures were worshiping creation as gods. And so you have Ra, the Egyptian sun god, or you have Yam, the Canaanite ocean god. David worships the god behind all of these things, not these things themselves. Creation is not to be worshiped, but enjoyed. Creation is not to be ultimate, but is to be a reference point for the glory of God, the weightiness behind creation. Creation itself, very gravitational center. And so we are to walk outside and see, experience, and come to wonder, come to a place of worship, but not those things as an end in and of themselves. We are to understand creation being the thing that speaks about the one who created it. In fact, David goes on in verse 3. He says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, hang on here. This is an oddly translated phrase in most of our English Bibles, but David is saying, go outside and listen. Do you hear any voices? You don't actually hear speech. There are no audible words. There is no audible voice of creation. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard, but, verse 4, their voice, nevertheless, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That is, he's saying, when you go outside, it is a quiet cacophony. It is silent, but it is deafening, the speech of God. And so if we stop to listen, if we stop to consider, if we stop to reflect, then our hearts are designed to respond in the exact same way that we sang earlier. And joyful, joyful, all thy works with joy surround thee, earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise, field and forest, vale and mountain. So we live in a state where, thankfully, we have all of those things. Flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, all of these things call us to rejoice in thee. All of these things are speaking to us and calling to us to worship the one who created them. God has created it all, created the sun even in verses five and six that rises in the sky, it sets, and then it hustles back to do it again and again. The sun gives light, it sustains life, there's nothing hidden from its heat, 
And yet, even it is not to be worshipped. It is silently giving warmth. It is silently shouting the glory of God, screaming the immensity and the kindness of God to provide. And so go outside, everyone. Go outside. Maybe you might stay up a little late tonight or not. Tonight's a school night. Uh, Maybe next Friday night, plan an evening to stay outside after the sun goes down. Lie down under the stars undistractedly sometime this week. Look at the clouds. They are amazing. Go on a hike. Marvel at the mountains. Find a waterfall. Science can explain why these things exist. There is tectonic movement. There is erosion. There is moisture and atmospheric levels. But it cannot explain the silent speech. It cannot explain your emotional response of wonder to a waterfall. Your longing for beauty and grandeur. And again, I know, yes, there are evolutionary or even chemical explanations for why you feel wonder and the longing for grandeur. But we intuitively know as human beings that we are more than just cause and effect machines. We do long for the transcendent. We are meaning makers. We are meaning finders. We are constantly looking and trying to find meaning. And so every single one of us has a sense of justice and morality that to some degree or another is outside of us. That is universal and transcendent. It is outside of nature. This longing for grandeur, this longing for justice is outside of us. We might say is even super or above nature. It is supernatural. This longing for glory. We don't need to be pre-modern, pre-science superstitionalists to acknowledge that or to be even thankful for that. And yet... The sun and the moon, the stars and the clouds, the mountains and the waterfalls, human life and caterpillars, all of these things, like how we started, all of these things are just idioms. A caterpillar is not much different than saying that that guy has hair on his teeth. In and of itself, it needs clarification. They cannot be understood. Psalm 19 always reminds me of, of book six in the Chronicles of Narnia the magician's nephew, not book one, and I will fight you on that. Uh, Amen? Amen. Uh, But, uh, it is book six, but Aslan the lion has just sung the world of Narnia into existence, culminating with a ton of animals that surround these human uh, visitors from our world. And those who have ears to hear can understand that all of these animals that Aslan has just created and sung into existence can actually talk. They are understanding the speech of these animals all around them. But the disordered Uncle Andrew, he can't understand. He just hears grunting. He hears howling. He hears barking and braying. He doesn't have ears. He doesn't understand the speech of creation all around him. And so, verse 7 here seems to take a hard right turn, so much so that uh, some commentators throughout the centuries actually think th- these are two separate psalms of David that later uh, editors jammed in together. That David's just talking about creation, and then he's talking about the law, and neither of them have anything to do with each other. But I'm convinced this is one psalm. We need the, sp- the silent speech of God that is revealed in creation to then be interpreted, to then be explained, to be clarified in God's word to us. We need our hearts reordered and our ears switched on. And so, 
after God reveals through creation. Now, secondly, God clarifies through his word. And so, David, after having his head up all day and all evening and all night, perhaps, looking at the the sun and the clouds and the stars, now he lowers his gaze, not on himself, but on the scriptures in front of him. He considers and rejoices in the fact that our God is a God who speaks. That we do not have to stumble blindly in the way of guessing what the gods want, what they expect from us, what they demand from us. We do not have to stumble in trying to find our way to them, but that Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of heaven and earth, has found his way to us. That he initiated with Adam in commands and expectations. And when Adam failed, he pursued Adam, both in justice, judgment, but also grace, compassion, and mercy. When humanity had completely rejected God at Babel, you want to talk about a magician's nephew moment of not understanding? The entire world is now made up of a bunch of Uncle Andrews who can't understand. But after that moment, God then initiates with Abraham. He calls Abraham to the land of his presence, initiating covenant, covenant blessing to him and through him, even speaking to him. Speaking to him in a moment, an incredible moment of saying, I will provide a sacrifice for you. When Abraham's descendants suffered in slavery and suffering, Yahweh heard their cries, and he spoke through his servant Moses. Even more than that, even giving his people the law, a means through which they might live in justice and in peace with each other, that they might become a shining city on a hill of a world of injustice that surrounded them. And so the worldview of David here, the worldview of later Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, the worldview of Jesus himself is that God speaks, that scripture cannot be broken, as Jesus says in John 10, 35, meaning that scripture, all of this is sure, it is cohesive, it is authoritative, it is trustworthy. It is not a library like some might call it. It is not a varied collection of, of reflections uh, from different people, from different times and different cultures as they try to understand God as best they can in their particular time and place. No, it is, it is a collection of books. It is a collection of books made by different authors of different cultures and different times. And yet, there is a divine author behind it. All scripture is God-breathed, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. And our God does not lie, Hebrews 6.18. And so, David just basks in, he swims in the knowledge and the reality that we have a God who has spoken to us. Not just in the quiet cacophony of creation, but in the clarifying candor of scripture. And just like think about that one right here. Just think about all of the ways that David, just look at like the second lines of all these couplets in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. What does it do? It revives the soul. It makes wise. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. And think about enlightening the eyes. While the speech of the sun lightens, 
God's word and the law of God, the speech of God, enlightens inside. It gives purpose. It assigns meaning. It gives us a way forward. It is a a lamp into our feet. It's kind of like our life without this is very much like if you found a Phillips head screwdriver and you had never seen a Phillips head screw. You might think that the screwdriver was for stabbing or for scratching your name into a tree, or this screwdriver is a tool for very inefficiently digging a hole. God speaks to us to assign use and purpose for our life. Not inefficient uses of a blind and stumbling purpose, but for the very purpose for which you were created. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself passion for God, and compassion for people. And then this explains exactly what that means in every avenue of your life. This assigns purpose for you, giving you purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And the law in David's in David's day, this side of the cross, or the whole of the scriptures in our day on this side of the cross, should be exactly what David says of it in verse 10. That the law, that God's speech to us, should be more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And yet, is this true for us? Would we not only agree with David with our mouths, but with our time, with our hearts. Let's modernize verse 10 a bit. The Bible is more desirable than a million dollars. No, 10 million dollars. So let's make a deal, everyone. Uh, Box number one is this leather-bound ESV And this might be, let's just, if we're playing hypothetical games here, this is the only chance that you have for the rest of your life to ever have a Bible, to ever look at it again, to ever read it again. Box number one. Box number two, a million dollars. No, $10 million. Like, just think about what you could do with $10 million. I just wrote you a check right now for $10 million. No more rent, no more mortgage payments. No more student debt. Think about the vacations that you could go on. Think about the vacation homes that you could buy. College tuition for kids or future kids. A wedding that you might be planning and now you can just make it the blowout wedding of all time. Bigger TVs, nicer cars. Shoot, even maybe like the nonprofits or the churches that you could give to in generosity. Just think about all of the ministries in town that could use, um, maybe not even giving them a million dollars, but think about all the nonprofits that you could would just so be so happy with a $50,000 check. Just, oh man, what if you could have that? Or the Bible. David says, it's an easy choice. An easy choice. Now I know you're thinking, easy for him to say, David, the very king of Israel, who has all of the money and wealth and power that he could ever long for and dream for. But two thoughts here. First, I don't think that I'd ever want to win the lottery or have some like enormous pile of money just uh, 
fall into my lap because I think my faith in God would shrivel, would shrivel so much and my reliance on the surety of money would become so uh, dependent, would become so strong that I think this would be distracting. And again, while I'm not the king of Israel, I am probably richer than 99.9% of all humans that have ever lived. We all are if we live in America. But just like the stars and the moon are a grounding reminder of our insignificance, there is a real gift in praying, give us this day our daily bread. Even if we aren't as 21st century Americans, maybe some of you are, but many of us in this room are not unsure of daily meals, or we are not unsure if we will eat today or tomorrow. Instill, though, in finding us to, finding our place to be, a place of needing to steward what God has given us. That we don't just have so much money that we don't, we don't even need to pray. We don't even need to think or thank God. We don't even need to think about wisdom with money or generosity with money or planning or dependence upon the Lord to provide just because it has just fallen into our lap. So I pray that, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to be buying any lottery tickets uh, in the first place, but I, I pray that none of you just like hand me a check for $10 million someday. I think we're in good, we're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to cross that bridge. But second, while we will never likely, I think, ever come to this place of this hypothetical let's make a deal scenario, $10 million or a Bible, while that's not a reality, yes, the Bible would be better. It would be actually better to have financial insecurity with a Bible than to have everything that you've ever dreamed of while then blindly stumbling around with a, like a purpose, purposeless screwdriver. Even if you've got years of Bible knowledge in your past, years of knowing God through his word and experience, do not rely upon or depend upon what is past. Do not presume upon yesterday's knowledge of God, but come to him today not guessing what he wants or thinking you remember what he wants, but in hearing what he wants. In hearing from him, the God who speaks of his desires for you. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So a question for us is, do you eat every day? Do you eat food every day? Then eat of God's word every day. Even if it's just reading a psalm like this for five minutes. That's a very small and light snack, but it will keep you alive. And hopefully it will cultivate even a deeper and greater appetite for the food, for the bread of God's word to you. But here's the thing about God's word to us. As one commentator puts it, as the sun can be both welcome in giving warmth, it can also be terrifying in its unrelenting heat. So too, scripture can be both life imparting, but also scorching, also testing, also purifying. But neither the sun or God's word are indispensable. There can be no life on this planet without the sun. There can be no true human life without the revealed word of God. This is what gives us purpose. And yet, David has just been considering and thinking about the law 
a lot. And considering and thinking about the law and God's demands of his expectations for humanity and his expectations for you, that can be terrifying, scorching, purifying. And so this gets us now to our third and final point, this shortest section. And that man responds in reverence. Verse 12, David asks, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from innocent, from innocent from hidden faults. Because here's the thing about David. While he loves the law of God, he has just said in verses just prior to this that it is perfect and right. God's speech, his law revives his soul, rejoices his heart. He still cannot keep it. He knows his heart. He knows his hands. He is a man who is full of sin, who is full of violence. And so what is his response here? Is his response to considering and loving the law of God and considering and loving God's speech to him? Is his response that the law of the Lord is perfect and right, so therefore I will do my absolute best? I will by raw willpower seek to make myself right and innocent before you, O God? No, what does he do? He asks for help. He first asks God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. That is, innocent from the things that he doesn't even realize are sinful. Actions, even attitudes that are not born out of love for God or out of love for neighbor. Declare me innocent from those things, David says. Not that he's actually not guilty of them, but that God can actually bring righteousness to sinful people. He can declare innocence. And more than that, verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So not only is David saying, oh God, bring righteousness to my hidden, sneaky, uh, under-examined inner life, but also, oh God, keep me from the brazen, external life and action that I know is wrong, but that I still do and pursue and plow through anyway. This is exactly the kind of thing that we professed earlier about repentance in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that we are to repent of particular sins, particularly. I know that's a really weird phrase, and we might have giggled when you said it, uh, but that's what we're getting. That's what David is getting at here. Hidden, inner sin, and brazen, presumptuous, external sin. God, help me. God, help me. Only you, God, can do this in me and through me. My willpower will fail. I am too weak. I am too frail. I am too self-worshipping. And so David prays. He is not just making a bunch of resolutions or commitments to God. He is asking God, with your help, then I shall be blameless. I shall be innocent of great transgression, he says. He's not saying that he is now capable of living sinlessly, but that he is able to live a blameless life, a right life, under the terms of the covenant which he is living. That God, who gave the law to generations before David, but has certainly given the law to David, he has given the law only after God delivered out of grace, out of mercy, out of kindness from slavery to Egypt, apart from any obedience. God delivered and then gave the law, delivered to obey, not obey 
to be delivered. The giving of the law accompanied the giving of the tabernacle. Right in the middle of Exodus, there's a bunch of commands on norms of living, and yet right in the middle of it, God also gives commands and expectations for like how tall and how wide to build each room and each uh, utensil and every single thing that appears in the tabernacle, the sacrificial system in which God instituted a system that presupposed that his people would continue to live in sin. It presupposed the people's inability for purity and for righteousness, but that God would forgive. God would cover their sin. David knows his sin, but in psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm, David praises God for his cleansing forgiveness, for his grace. In Psalm 63 too, David writes, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I think if we read a verse like that, we're imagining David's like sitting outside or sitting on the outside of a room, like, like poking his head around the corner in the trying to see into the Holy of Holies, and he sees like this Raiders of the Lost Ark-like moment of power and glory. And yet, we don't ever have a moment like that described. I think if David had had a moment like that, we'd have a story appearing in like 1st or 2nd Samuel describing that moment. As far as we know, he never had a moment like that. And so what he is describing in Psalm 63, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What David is likely describing is just the priest's who are doing their very boring, their very prescribed, their very regular work inside the tabernacle. And that, to David, is power and is glory. The very next verse, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The boring priestly work that goes on in the tabernacle is cause for praise. David is not sinless but he is safe and he is happy in the powerful love of God through the forgiveness of his sins. He is not sinless, and yet he longs for, he devotes his heart, he devotes times of self-reflection. He devotes his mind to the glory of God so that while he is not sinless, he is beginning to sin less. Praying that God would reveal his inner heart, praying that God would transform his outer life, his hands and his mouth, and which is essentially exactly what he then prays for in verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth, the things that are external, and the meditation of my heart, the things that are internal, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. External words, internal thoughts and desires being aligned to the glory of the God who also created, not just you, but who also created the sun and the moon and the stars. And that is what is so incredible and is so unique about the God of the Bible. That the God of the Bible is indeed transcendent, unique. He is without rival. He is unlike us. He is glorious. He is powerful and immense, glorious. And yet at the very same time, while he is transcendent, he is simultaneously imminent. He is near. He is knowable. He knows our thoughts. More than that, he cares for our thoughts, not because he's petty, not because he has nothing better to do in running the universe, but that he loves us. He loves his glory so much. He desires the good of every human being and therefore the good of his creation, that he wants the inner and the outer life of his people to be transformed to his glory for his glory. 
the glory of God in us to be as clear as the glory of God in a mountain or in the moon. And yet, like the sun, he is the one who is able to purify and give life, but he is simultaneously terrifying. He is able to scorch and consume. And so, out of self-awareness for his own holiness, out of consistency of character for righteousness and justice, and out of love for rebel sinners who would reject him at every turn and opportunity, he became more imminent, more near than David could have ever imagined. That a son of David, a once and future king, that a son of God, the always and eternal creator, would live and dwell among us. Would obey the law entirely with perfectly aligned speech and hands and heart. He would represent his people. He would redeem his people. He would then, by his spirit, transform his people by writing the law on their hearts. The same God of the moon and the stars writing on our hearts and shaping our hearts. Last year, I shared with you a a tweet from a Twitter account called the Atheist Forum. And this tweet from the person who runs this account was, I think he or she assumed it was a real zinger and was going to like totally cause Christianity to cease to exist or something. But it said, Christianity... Belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. To which David might reply, incredible, isn't it? Amazing. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. The God of the moon and the stars, amazing. Because the heavens declare the glory of God, because God has clarified and spoken to us in his word, and then by the power of the blood of Christ and the transforming power of his spirit, Then, if all of that is true, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that that might be so. We pray that in observing and reflecting on your power and your immensity and your glory and creation and your nearness in speaking to us in your word, in your nearness and becoming incarnate and becoming a human to walk and dwell among us, and then in making your dwelling place in our hearts through the power of the Spirit, your people. God, we pray that you might now be transformed inside and out, that our outer external lives, our mouths and our hands might be fully aligned with our inner life, our desires, that all of these things, our inner and external life, might be conformed to the image of Christ. Help us, we pray, for our own joy, that we might live a life of purpose and joy, and for your glory to be made known in this earth, in Albuquerque, in our neighborhoods, but even to the ends of the earth. Might those who have some uh, small and intuitive 
perhaps misguided or disordered understanding of a God of power in this world come to know you as a personal God who has lived and bled and died and has been raised to life for them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.